What a trophy. That looks like it should go home with me, doesn't it? All right. Have your Bibles. Go ahead and open up to the book of Romans, chapter 1. We're kind of digging in through our study. We've just did a little bit of the introductory part, and now we're getting into verse 16 and 17. Um, And a lot of commentators and a lot of people through history have assumed that these two verses really are the main punch of Romans. It's the theme, in essence. It's, It's what Paul is really trying to get across to everybody as he's going to expound throughout the rest of the book of Romans. So these two passages are, are verses are really important to us. So let's, let's read them. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul begins by saying that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's, it's power of God. And Romans, they appreciated power. I mean, they, they, they just, as much as Americans do, they, they relish in the fact that they were the most powerful nation on earth and, and they were able to, to take care of any other nation that might oppose them or to interfere with their strategy and, and, and their moving forward in life. Their military power could conquer anybody else. And they also had this tremendous power in road building. And they made a network across their empire that made it so easy for their military, especially, to move quickly. They were tremendous in their, their ability as recognized as some of the greatest lawmakers in history. They were also very influential in writing literature and creating masterpieces of art. But Paul knew that the Romans had one area in which they were powerless. They were powerless to change the heart of men. They were powerless in a variety of ways that that heart impacts others. They had no ability to eliminate slavery. They, their, half their population of the Roman Empire were almost, oh, half of them were slaves at this time. The Roman Empire was also very stubborn and hostile and hateful in, in their hearts, and they, they had extreme violence. It was so violent with corruption that the suicide rate was astronomically high. And they were powerless to change those things. They could do nothing about it. And Paul says, that is why he's proud of the gospel. Because the gospel has the ability to take a man, and no matter what condition he is, and to make something out of him that is wonderful and righteous, because it is what God has the ability to do through it. So we need never apologize for the gospel. We ought to appreciate its power and its significance because it has even come through the ages and has reached us in our generation and has changed our lives for the better as well. It's absolutely the most powerful and significant thing that this world has ever experienced. Now, as most Christians know, the word gospel, euangelion in in Greek, means good news. 
Now, Chad mentioned the good news earlier, and it is good news, I mean, especially to sinners. But, but I have to ask myself this question, what is, what is so, this good news all about? Why is it so good news? I mean, in our text, it gives us just three quick examples of, of what this good news is about. The first thing is this, it's the power of God for salvation. Now, that's good news. The second is that it, it, re, it is received by faith. For salvation to everyone who believes, he tells us. And third, it's all about the righteousness of God. For in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. But it raises some very important question. How can God's righteousness be any good to us as sinners? How is it His holiness be anything that's good for us who have gone against him and have made him to be our enemy because of our sin. Well, let's begin with what is righteousness? Literally, righteousness means conformity to the proper norm. That's what it means. Conformity to the proper norm. So what's expected Leviticus chapter 19, verse 36, God is telling Moses and the people of Israel as he's laying out his laws of righteousness, he makes this little statement here in Leviticus 19, 36. He says, you shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So he, he uses this word just, 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 just. That word is a very significant word because in Hebrew it is tzedek. And that word is used to describe an honest weighing system and a measuring instruments and how we determine what is fair across the whole gamut of measurements. So if I go to one store and I want to buy a, a, a bunch of wheat, I'm going to pay the same price for the same weight of wheat at one store that I will at another store because it's all going to be based upon the same measurements and they're all going to be just and balanced. Some English translations such as the New King James Version, the New International Version, they translate that word tzedek as honest. All right? And, and others such as the English Standard Version or the New American Standard Bible, they translate that word as just. But most often in the Old Testament, that word is translated righteous. Righteous. So when Abraham met Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem, Melchizedek, Melchizedek, that word, that name means king of righteousness. All right? So it is this, this aspect of righteous. The point of the law of Moses was to require that merchants... And their means of measuring their product, their scales, they all equal the same. Now, wouldn't it be great if you could go to a gas station somewhere and find that one gas station's measuring system for their gallons is off a little bit to your advantage? All right, we would go there often, wouldn't we? But if they did not tell you that their measuring system was off to their advantage, you might be a little upset, wouldn't you? All right. Across the board, 
He wants things to be righteous, things to be just. So in today's terms, they had to conform to the accepted norm for a pound or a gallon or a bushel or an ephah or a yard or whatever the measurement was. We can even take that further beyond just the measurement of buying products. And we'll look at like, let's say, our law enforcement officers today. Sometimes you might hear them speak of a righteous arrest. Well, what that means is that they have done everything strictly in accordance with the law. They've done it according to the book. There's no deviation. There's nothing that's out there that was illegal in the thing. It is a clean arrest. There was no underhandedness, no rule-breaking such as planting evidence. It's a righteous because it conforms to the accepted norm of what the law says they have to do. And if they don't abide by that, then the guilty party has a potential of getting off. So we want a righteous arrest. But then I ask myself, what is human righteousness then? If, if our activity that conforms to the standard of what is norm, we have to ask ourselves, what is the norm? What is the standard? Who gets to set that standard? I mean, is it, do I get to set the standard for myself and my family? Or, and you get to set the standard for yourself and your family? Or is somebody else going to set that standard for us? Well, in America, somebody else sets that standard for us. They determine what the law is, and we elect them into office. And so there are laws in Missouri, and there are laws within our nation. And if you go to another state, there are laws there. And it doesn't matter if you are ignorant of the law. The standard and the norm is set. And you've got to conform to that if you're going to be righteous in our human standards. Now, a righteous person is one who always conforms to the standard or the norm. Now, the norm to which people must conform and by which we measure is not the laws of Missouri or the laws of the United States or the laws of our world. They are the laws of God. That's the standard that has been set on how we should live as individuals. The law commandments of of whatever law code happens to apply to any given individual in his own time or his own circumstances, that's above and beyond. But there are laws that are set by God. And ever since the death of Jesus Christ, that law code by which human righteousness is measured is mainly the collective teachings of the law that are found within the New Testament. And so how do we measure up to Christ? We got a problem, don't we? So to be righteous, we must satisfy the requirements of God's law. Now, the language is very important, and the concept itself is very crucial for us to to find out what is contained in that understanding of, as he says, this gospel and this law. Now, we know that Many laws are not fair. It wasn't until August 18th of 1920 that women could vote in America. Well, that's not fair, is it? Our nation began when? We started our war in 1776 and declared ourselves that. We established our governments in the early 1800s. Everything was rolling, right? And so over 120 years later, 
Women still have no voice in making the laws and the decisions of the land. It wasn't until then, after many years and and decades of suffrage and pushing forward to get that, that finally at least there became an equality of vote, possibly, right? But the law of God doesn't change. It always stays the same. And to be righteous, we must satisfy the requirements of God's law that are never changing, So, if human righteousness fails, then I think I need to ask myself, what is divine righteousness? What is God's righteousness like? It's the righteousness of God that's contained in this gospel that Paul tells us, for it is the righteousness of God is revealed here in this gospel. And if righteousness means conformity to the norm, then what norm does God need to conform himself to if he's going to be righteous? Does God have laws? Has somebody set up a standard for him in which he is supposed to live by? You see, the norm that he must conform to in order for him to be righteous is his very own nature. He can't change. He's got to be true to himself. So to God is righteous means that all of his thoughts and his words and his deeds must conform to, to his pure and perfect moral character. There's no deviation in it. And to be righteous, God must be absolutely true and faithful to himself and to his own word. And, and every action must be completely consistent with his nature, including all of his attributes. And in this context, the important attribute to which God must always be true is his own truthfulness. So Jesus tells us this in John chapter 3, verse 33. He says, whoever receives this testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. There is truth right there. And truth does not change. It's always constant. And Jesus tells us God is true. And so his righteousness is revealed because he does not change from that. He must always tell the truth and he must always keep his promises and he can never go back on his word. Romans, Paul writes in the third chapter, verse 4, he says, Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. God has to be true to himself. And a righteous God must always keep his word, his promises, his threats, his warnings, his judgments. And as a righteous lawgiver... And we see that as God. Isaiah tells us that. James tells us that in the fourth chapter. That God must uphold the sanctity and the purity of his own law. He doesn't create a law for us that he himself is not going to perfect in his own attributes in life. He must always be sure that the requirements of his law are satisfied. And so if they have to be satisfied, if if they're not kept then there must be some form of a penalty as a response to a law that is broken. I mean, that's the way it is. Law has a standard that you have to live by, and if you don't live by that, then there are consequences to what the law is required. 
And so he must be sure that the penalties of law are applied, and his righteousness requires it. I mean, that the penalties are fulfilled is an aspect of his righteousness. But it raises the question again, how can that be good news? <laughs> because we know we've blown it. And so we can't be righteous because we've not met the standard, and so therefore all we get is penalty, and God's going to have to see to it that the penalties are enacted against me. Well, that's not good news. I mean, that's awful news. But the righteousness of God is going to declare that. And so he writes to the church in Rome in this first passage, and he's telling them that this, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why? Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Oh, no. So God's righteousness versus our our personal righteousness. How do we stand up? I mean, which one do we want to go for? I mean, your personal righteousness, it has the opportunity to take you to heaven, right? I mean, if, if you are able to perfect your life in obedience to the law of God, then you can get there. But, but if you mess up, then, then it's gone. But then there's God's righteousness. Paul says that he's not ashamed of this gospel because in it, in the gospel, in the good news, the righteous of God can be good news for the sinner. But how? Well, the answer is this. The righteousness of God is good news to the sinner because it gives us a way to be saved that's not based on our own personal righteousness but as a gift most of the world sees personal righteousness as satisfying the requirements of the law and and that's the only way they can be saved that's the only way they're going to get to heaven is if they live a perfect life here's an example taken out of the history and the culture of ancient Egypt S.G.F. Brandon wrote a book called The Judgment of the Dead. And in it, he makes these statements. He says, in ancient Egypt, a final judgment involved the defendant's declaration of his complete innocence before God's. All right? So he's going to declare his innocence, that he's never broken a law, never done anything wrong. He's completely innocent. And if he wants to get into the afterlife, then he's going to have to declare that before the gods before him. There can be no appeal to any savior God. The individual's plea is based solely upon his claim to an upright life. Now, in the first declaration, it's made before the god Osiris. And so it, it kind of goes something like this. He, he has a list of, I have not. I have not this, I have not that. For example, he says, I've not committed iniquity against men. In other words, I've not sinned against people. I have not ill-treated animals. I have not impoverished a poor man. I have not caused weeping. I have not killed. I have not added to the weights of the balance. And the defendant closes his defense with Osiris by saying, I am pure, I am pure, 
I am pure. I am pure. Then we move on to the second declaration. And there are 42 other deities, by the way. <laughs> All right, so he's going to have to go before each of these deities and prove his innocence by making this declaration statements and declaring himself to be proven to be pure and innocent, that he has no wrongdoing in particular that he's done. And then it follows this general speech in which the defendant then uh, asserts his righteousness. And in effect, he declares that the gods therefore owe him salvation because of how he has lived. And so he will say, I come to you without evil, having committed no deceit, without iniquity within me, without a hostile witness against me, and I have given bread to the hungry, water to the thirsty, clothing to the naked, and a boat to him that had none. Save me therefore and protect me. Now, you're going to go through this with all of the gods of Egypt, hoping that none of them will raise an objection to your salvation and to declare your own personal righteousness filthy. But where do we actually stand in relation to God in terms of our own personal righteousness? In other words, in terms of how you satisfied the requirements of the law, where do you stand? What if, what if the only laws you had to actually fulfill were the Ten Commandments? I mean, how would you do? All right? You shall have no other gods before me. You don't make any graven engines. You don't use the name of the Lord in vain. And you remember the Sabbath day and you keep it holy. You honor your father and mother. You do not murder. You do not commit adultery. You do not steal. You do not bear false witness. You don't covet your neighbor. I mean, we start to lay these all, and there's only 10 that I have to uphold. Then how do you fare? Well, I've blown it. I've murdered. What? Well, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit murder. But I tell you, a man who hates, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, a man who lusts, man, do you catch it? None of us can stand in our own personal righteousness against those ten. So Jesus says, all right, all right let's bring it down to just two all right, let's, what are the two greatest commandments? If all we had were two, the guy said, who, which ones would they be? What's the greatest commandment, Jesus? And he tells us they're in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. He says to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Uh-oh. With all your soul. Oh, we're getting deeper, aren't we? And with all your mind. That's the, the greatest and the first commandment. And the second is like it, he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. How do you stand up with these two? Do you make it? I mean, we've taken, gotten rid of all the laws... We've gotten down to the ten, now we've gotten down to two. And in your entire life, have you fulfilled even these two? Okay, let's drop the second, but how about the first? Well, now, the fact is this. We can 
satisfy the requirements of the law. Really, we can do it in two ways. The, the first is this. Um, the requirement of the law to satisfy it is we either, one, have to fulfill it perfectly in obedience. Well, you haven't done that. I haven't done that. So there's another way. Another way that you can fulfill the requirements of the law is to receive the penalty for breaking it. And once you have paid the penalty, then you're free, right? I mean, that's even what our judicial system is all about. They're going to give you a fine. You put your wallet out and you pay the fine, right? And then you're free. Your ticket has been removed, all right? Or, or you go and you serve time in prison or on parole, and once that time is up, then you're free, and, and, and it's as if it's, the obligation's been met. But the penalty for breaking the law of God and His righteousness well, spending eternity in hell. And those are the only two choices we have for personal righteousness. Obedience or paying the penalty. Well, I know where I stand. I'm in debt. So to be saved by our own personal righteousness, we must satisfy the commandments of God's law. We must satisfy them perfectly. Otherwise, we must satisfy the law's penalties. So what about you? Where do you stand in this matter of satisfying the requirements of God's law? Having personal righteousness. Well, let me ask you. I'm going to ask you two, two things, statements. See which one you can agree with. Here's the first. The first is this. I have always satisfied and always will satisfy the commandments of God's law in every way required by His holy character. In other words, I have never sinned and I will never sin. Raise your hand. All right, well, maybe this one will be for you, okay? I have not always satisfied the commandments of God's law in every way possible, and, and therefore I acknowledge that satisfying its penalty, spending eternity in hell, is the only option that remains for me as far as the law is concerned. How many of you? Now, you have to choose one or the other. So you're either saying you're perfect and you fulfilled the law of God and its righteous requirements, or you're going to fulfill its penalty. Which one? You, you don't have a choice, right? No, you do have a choice. Which Are you going to be perfect or penalized? That's where we stand. But here's the good news. God's righteousness comes to the rescue. All right? His righteousness does come to the rest. Since our personal righteousness will not save us, our only hope then is the righteousness of God. But how can we say that we're better off by appealing to God's righteousness for salvation? I mean, simply as an attribute of God, His, His divine righteousness sounds like a bad news for me because I can't measure up. You see, a righteous God must be true to His holy nature and how does a holy God deal with sin? Wrath. Condemnation. 
hell. I mean, that's how he deals with sin. He has to. He has no other choice because for him to maintain his righteousness, he has to punish. The judge doesn't like doing that, but he has to to fulfill the requirements of law. Some judges will even inflict a death penalty. When was the first time that it was based upon your word saying your penalty is death? Could you say that about somebody? I know we've hated people enough we've wished they were dead. But to actually have that within your power and control. So how is the gospel really good news for us why didn't Paul say that, that the gospel is revealing the love of God or, or the, the mercy of God or the grace of God? No, it says the righteousness of God. That's what the gospel reveals to us. I like love. I like grace. I like mercy. I, I like that instead. Can we interpose those words instead of righteousness? Because the righteousness is going to demand that I'm going to get punished. But his love, he loves me, and so therefore he'll let me go free, right? His grace, his mercy, he gives me when I don't deserve, and, and, and he lets me off, right? I mean, that's what I want the gospel, the good news to be that you're okay. I'm okay. We're all okay, right? And that's good news. Martin Luther confessed that while he was still Roman Catholic that he struggled a lot with Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Because he had been taught that the righteousness of God had to be that attribute of God that requires him, God, to punish sinners. So that stirred within Martin Luther a rage against God, almost a hatred for God for what he was going to do and, and that he had to, to do this. And, and so he, he said, isn't it enough that we miserable sinners are eternally lost through original sin? Isn't it enough that our personal sins against God's law crush us even further into that lost state? Why then does God add pain to pain by using even the gospel to threaten us with his righteous and his wrath? Because that's all he saw. Why is he using his gospel, the good news, to threaten us? Because he is righteous. Yet Luther would testify that he kept studying those verses until he came to see that this phrase, the righteousness of God here, means more than just the attributes of God in accordance with which he judges and condemns us sinners, that it also came to mean a gift of God which he gives to sinners and by which he saves them. So Paul tells us in a couple chapters later, chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Isn't that amazing? So he tells the church at Corinth in his second letter, 
chapter 5, verse 21, he says, For our sake, for our sake, God, He made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, now see, there's a twist. God, who is righteous, He made Jesus take on our sin so that by our faith in Him, we might take on His righteousness. There's where the work of the power of salvation for us is. Then he tells the church in Philippi, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, he says, Indeed, I count everything, Paul says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then he says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, what? Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Wow. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, this righteousness of God is ours by our faith in Jesus and what he has done for us. It now is imputed upon us that we can then get to rise from our death and to be able to ascend into heaven because of what he has done. My failures don't matter anymore. His success does. And it's by faith. I love how Isaiah puts it. Isaiah the prophet, in the 61st chapter, in verse 10, he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. You see, that last verse, significant verse, speaks of the robe of righteousness in which God bestows upon us. He makes me look like I'm important when I have no value. He makes me look like I am clean when I am filthy, There's nothing about my life that is pure or holy, and yet he declares me to be pure and holy because he puts his robe of righteousness around me, and it's done because of what Jesus has done for me. This robe of righteousness is prepared for us by the work of Jesus, through whom God himself satisfies the requirements of the law. And then he gives us his own righteousness. (coughs) One of the main purposes of the incarnation of God in Jesus into this world was to present His righteousness to us. You see, He does this so that we can be saved. Now I have to ask myself, when when Jesus, God, takes on flesh and comes into this world, does He 
does he need righteousness? Because wasn't he already righteous? So why does he have to fulfill the laws of righteousness on earth? Well, because he became man. He is divinely God, yes, but he is also innately man like us with the ability to be tempted to the sins as a man would be tempted. And so he had to fulfill the requirements of the law as a man. But that doesn't do that for us. It's not just his ability to require that to fill, fulfill the righteousness here because he already was perfect in his nature, because he never sinned. That leaves the only other aspect of the righteous requirement that he could do for us. The penalty. But since he didn't sin, he didn't need to pay a penalty. So why does he? Why does he die on a cross when he doesn't need to? For us. You see, this is the righteousness of God that is transferred to us as sinners. If we accept it in faith. Christ's satisfaction of law's penalty in our place. And so what follows in is another set of choices that one must make if we're going to acknowledge and accept what Christ has done for us on the cross. You see, the point of the gospel is this, <clears throat> that God is, is offering us a choice between our own personal righteousness or His righteousness, which He's going to offer us as a free gift. Here, the righteousness that He offers is the satisfaction of the law's penalty of eternity in hell. So in view of that fact that I'm a sinner, I'm a lawbreaker, and as such, I must satisfy the penalty aspect of God's law in order to uphold righteousness. I have a choice to make in how I'm going to satisfy the penalty of the law. I can satisfy that penalty, one, by paying for it myself and spending eternity in hell. Or two, I will humbly accept what Jesus has done to satisfy that penalty for me, allowing God to both justify me, a sinner, and at the same time uphold His own righteousness and His character by letting Himself step in my place to fulfill the penalty. Paul's going to tell us in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans, beginning with verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. No wonder the righteousness of God is good news to us as sinners. I'm not sure 
where this story originated. I, I put it in my article in the midweek earlier, but it, it's an extremely powerful message. It's a story about an African man who, who had been living centuries ago, but he was coerced either by his tribe or some other outside group. They wanted him to renounce his faith in Jesus Christ or be put to death. Rather than denying his faith in Jesus, he wrote what is now called the Creed of the Fellowship of the Unashamed. It's kind of creed for those of us who have found our spiritual feet that we have chosen to walk by faith in the Spirit and inspires a sense of boldness on our behalf that we are not ashamed of the gospel because we understand there is power in it for salvation And that power is something that we definitely need in America today. He says, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of His. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, applause, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on His presence, walk by patience, am uplifted by prayer and labor by power. My pace is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow, my way rough, my companions feud. My guide is reliable and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the adversary, negotiate at the table of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he'll have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation for all who will believe, to the Jew first and to the Gentile. In it is revealed the righteousness of God. From faith to faith, do you believe? Are you willing to live by faith? The gospel is good news for each and every one of us. But you've got to accept it. Let's pray. Father, as we we look at ourselves, we see ourselves in truth. 
We know who we are. We know what we've done. And we know what we're planning on doing. And Father, sometimes it is totally against your righteousness and the law that we have to live by, not that has been established by man, but by you. That universal law that all men have even know upon their hearts what is right and what is wrong. And yet, Father, we choose time and time again to sin. But we are so thankful for what Jesus has done and that he offers for us <coughs> his ability to pay the penalty for our sins and a robe of righteousness that covers us. Father, help us to acknowledge him as Lord, as Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.